It is a uh, truth that is unfortunate. It is a truth that is unsettling. It's a truth that's a bit disgusting. It bothers us. It's a truth that some of us will push against and disagree with. It's a truth that we don't wanna think about. It's a truth that we don't wanna hear about. And consequently, it's a truth that we hope and we pray it isn't actually true. But life teaches us otherwise. Our experience teaches us otherwise. And that simple but profound truth is this right here. When the circumstances are right, we are capable of committing any wrong. Now just think about that for a minute because that's a bit uncomfortable and it's a bit unsettling. When the circumstances are right, when, when the wind's blowing just right and the right people are there and the right things are in place, when the circumstances are right, we are capable of committing any wrong. Now. If we wanted to make it more unsettling, if we wanted to make it more uncomfortable, we would just personalize it and say that when the circumstances are right, I am capable of committing any wrong. That, that's when it gets really personal. Matter of fact, let's all just say the personal version together. When the circumstances are right, I am capable of committing any wrong. One more time. When the circumstances are right, I am capable of committing any wrong. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, I can think at least one thing, two things I never do. That's not the point. The point is that none of us should underestimate our capacity to do the wrong thing. You should never underestimate your capacity. I should never underestimate my capacity to do the wrong thing. Nor should you overestimate our ability to resist the pull of doing the wrong thing, especially when the circumstances are just right. Every single one of us, we need to realize or we need to remember that there's gonna be times in life, there have been times in life, maybe there is a time in life right now when what I think is best and what I wanna do comes up against what God says is best and what God wants me to do. Because there have been moments in your life, there have been moments in my life, perhaps they're now, perhaps they're past, they're certainly gonna revisit us again in the future. There's gonna be moments when I want to do what I wanna do and I think it's best, but yet it's in conflict. It's in opposition. It's the antithesis of what God wants me to do and what God thinks is best. But here's what I've discovered, and this is the ugly and the horrible part of this unsettling, just uncomfortable truth. That many, many times, and for some of us what feels like most of the time, when what I wanna do and what I think is best is in conflict with what God wants me to do and what God thinks is best, Many times, if not most of the time, I win. I win. I defeat God. In that moment, I win out. My desire went out, wins out over God's desire. My will wins out over God's will. And when that happens, that takes us into some really dangerous places. And that's what we're gonna talk about today, but in just a moment. Now. When Jesus showed up on the pages of history, everything about everything changed. And before his public debut onto the pages of history, the winds of change were already blowing in first century Palestine. 
There was the hope of the future Messiah that was in the minds and upon the hearts of the people because God had promised all the way back to Abraham and then again to King David and through the prophets down through the centuries that one day God was going to send a promise and God was going to send a deliverer. He was going to send a savior. So as the pages of the Old Testament open up, this is how Luke, who thoroughly investigated the entire story of Jesus, investigated the eyewitnesses and concluded that it was all certain. This is what he said. He said, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, listen to the detail of this. This is, this is somebody writing and he's saying, fact check me. You don't think what I'm writing is true? Fact check me. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Ituria, and Trachonitis and Lysanias Tetrarch of Abilene. And then he introduces us to somebody that we're going to talk about today. He says, all of this was happening also during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now, Caiaphas was the high priest, but Annas was his father-in-law. And back behind the scenes, even though Caiaphas was the official high priest, Annas was still pulling some of the strings. He was still powerful. He was still very influential. Now, a little bit about Annas before Caiaphas, just so you can understand a little bit of the story. Annas was appointed by the Roman governor, Serenius, because the Romans were in control and Serenius put Annas in power. Ten years later, he was taken out of power as high priest by another Roman governor, Valerius Gratus. And Gratus took him out of power, and then he put another guy in place, and he didn't work out because being the high priest in first century Palestine was a difficult proposition. You had to keep two different people groups very happy. You had to keep the Jewish people happy, and you had to keep the Roman Empire happy. And not just anyone was cut out for that type of job. You had to be the bridge between those two worlds, the Jewish world and the Roman world. You had to keep the zealots at bay in the Jewish world, and you had to keep Roman opposition at bay in the Roman world. And so it was difficult. And so Gratus, he put in one high priest in, and then another high priest and a third high priest, three high priests in a matter of three years. At the end of those three years, he was, he was so frustrated and he, he was like looking for somebody who could hold this position long-term and Gratus decided to put in Annas' son-in-law, Caiaphas, into power. And Caiaphas would become one of the most powerful people because being high priest was much like, and the only way I really know how to describe it is, being high priest in the first century was like being Pope in the Middle Ages. There was a whole lot of power and a lot of wealth. Caiaphas, as high priest, was the head of the religious state of Judaism, and he was really the de facto head of the nation. He was a priest, but he was more like a king. He was incredibly powerful because he was the one man. He was the one man one time of year who had extraordinary access to God. Once a year, the high priest would go into the holies of holies where God was said to have dwelled, and he would make atonement for the sins of the people. And when you're the only person who gets that access to God, you have influence and power that goes along with it. But not only because of his access to God, but because of his access, his access to staggering amounts of wealth. Uh, Jewish people in the first century, all over the known world, all over the empire, would send an offering back to Jerusalem known as the temple tax. And what was the equivalent of hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of millions of dollars would flow back into Jerusalem. Do you know who controlled all of that money? The high priest, Caiaphas. He was the head of the temple treasury. So he had access to extraordinary wealth, staggering amounts of wealth. He had power because he was the head of the temple police. He was the chief justice of the Supreme Court known as the Sanhedrin. And from the people's perspective, he was the power of God 
on earth. And that's what it was like to be the high priest. Now, Caiaphas was a Sadducee. You've heard of the Sadducees, Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees was basically a religious aristocracy. They were wealthy, well-educated, and sometimes more political than they were religious. The Sadducees were incredibly powerful, and at the top of that incredibly powerful aristocracy was Caiaphas. And Caiaphas was part of Annas' family. And this was a dynastic family that ruled the temple for nearly 50 years. Caiaphas reigned for nearly 20 years. And what that tells us is that he had an amazing amount of political prowess. He was able to keep at bay the Jewish world and keep at bay the Roman world because he was the buffer between both. And his one goal, his greatest responsibility was to preserve Jewish autonomy. The Romans, yes, they were in charge, but they allowed the Jews to kind of do what they wanted to do as long as they didn't step on the Roman toes. And so his job was to make sure that the Jewish people and specifically the Jewish religious aristocracy were able to maintain their autonomy and their somewhat independence. He was the consummate politician and he was to preserve and to protect the freedom. What freedom he had been given from Rome. And so Luke goes on and says, it was during this high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas that the word of God came to John. This is John the baptizer. Some of you grew up calling him John the Baptist. God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And when John the Baptist shows up or John the baptizer shows up in the first century, this was the landscape. Annas and Caiaphas were running the show and John shows up down there in the Jordan River Basin and he dressed differently and he ate differently and he communicated differently than anybody in that generation had ever seen. He called out religious hypocrisy like no no one had ever done. He was like bold and courageous. And he was speaking what many of the people had been thinking, but dared not ever say out loud. And he sent shockwaves throughout Judea and Jerusalem. So much so, so much so that Mark, when he writes about John the baptizer, he says this, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. In other words, thousands of people were flocking out to John because they knew he was a prophet. They would listen to him preach and watch him baptize. But they also wondered if he might be more than a prophet. Luke again says, the people, all these people that were coming out, they were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah because there were winds of change. There were winds of expectation and anticipation in the air about the arrival of the Messiah. And not only were the people curious, but the religious leaders were curious. And they sent a convoy down to the Jordan River Basin, down there to the Jordan River to go ask John. And John's out there and he's baptizing in front of thousands of people and he's preaching to thousands of people. And out there in the middle of the river, these religious leaders show up and they say, John, we have a question. John says, what's your question? They said, are you the Messiah? And John's like, oh, I'm not the Messiah, but I am preparing the way for the Messiah. And I will have you know that he is soon approaching. And as John is out there in the middle of that river, and as he's preaching and baptizing with thousands of people on the shore, John looks up and sees Jesus. And John, in that moment, impromptu, diverts from his sermon, points to Jesus and says those words that most of the world has heard. Behold, the Lamb of God that comes to take away the sins of the world. And everybody looks to Jesus and Jesus walks into the water and John baptizes him. And that day, the ministry of Jesus went public. And from the very beginning, the world has never, ever 
recovered from it. When Jesus' public ministry launched, Jesus had animosity towards the religious leaders and the religious leaders had hatred for Jesus. They hated Jesus because of his claims. He claimed to be equal with God. He was the son that had equal authority as the father. He would claim to be sent from God. He claimed to exist before Abraham because he said, before Abraham was, I am. And they hated him for it. They hated him because of his miracles. I mean, think about that. It it seems so counterintuitive. They hated him because of his miracles. One particular miracle, he healed a man that had been born blind. You can read about it in the Gospel of John chapter 8. But a man who had been born blind, and everybody seemingly knew this guy, when Jesus healed him, it sent the religious establishment into an uproar. They called an emergency meeting. They interviewed this guy who had been born blind, but now he clearly sees. And they said, listen, is this man that healed you, is he a sinner? He said, I don't know if he's a sinner or not, but the one thing I do know, I was once blind, but now I see. And they hated Jesus for it. They hated Jesus because he disregarded their Old Testament laws. He healed on the Sabbath. He reinterpreted Old Testament laws and they hated him for it. But perhaps most of all, not only was John bold and brazen, but Jesus would confront the religious hypocrisy time and time again. On one particular occasion, Jesus would confront them in such a way and say, you're nothing but hypocrites. What you do, you do for a show. You religious people, What you do, you do for a show. You pray for a show. You fast for a show. You give for a show. He would say, you do twice as much bad as what you do good. Because every time you make a convert, you make them twice the son of hell as what they were before. Woo! He says, you're like the blind leading the blind. You're like a cup that's been washed and is pretty on the outside. But on the inside, it is full of poison and toxicity. He says, you're like a tomb that's been whitewashed, decorated, but on the inside, it's full of dead men's bones. And then he looked at them and he said these words, and they stung. He said, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? This was Jesus's way of saying, guys, you're gonna split hell wide open. Mic drop. Walk away and let people sit with that one. Right? This is Jesus. <laughs> we don't think of Jesus like this. The animosity between Jesus and the religious establishment continues, continues, continues until it reaches a tipping point. A sentinel moment which begins to set in motion a series of events which will lead to the death of Jesus. What is that event? What was the tipping point? It was a miracle that Jesus performed when he raised his good friend Lazarus from the dead. You remember this story? It's recorded in the Gospel of John chapter 11. They sent word to Jesus, said, your friend's sick, come over here, you need to get here fast. Jesus delayed. By the time Jesus got there, Lazarus had been dead, not one day, not two days, not three days, but four days he'd been dead. Martha goes out and meets Jesus, and she, you know, she's, pretty, she's a pretty feisty lady, and you know, she's independent, and she, she's got a lot of courage and brass herself, and she goes up to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would still be alive. Jesus, I imagine, got a grin on his face and said, Martha, your brother will live again. And Martha's, I know it. I know I paid attention. I know there's going to be a resurrection. I've heard the Old Testament. There's going to be a resurrection at the end of days. And Jesus said, Martha, 
I am the resurrection and the life. And though a man believes in me, and though he be dead, yet shall he live. And then Jesus walks up to the tomb of his friend and says, Lazarus, come forth. <laughs> and he did. And there was a whole crowd of people there because they were, they were there for the funeral of Lazarus. And now all of a sudden, Lazarus joins his own funeral. <laughs> and everybody's watching this. And this is what John says happened next. It says, therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary because there's a funeral going on and had seen what Jesus did because it was without question what had just happened. Many of them believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So they go back and it says, then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. That's 70 people on the high court. And the 71st person was the president of the high court, the leader of the high court, and his name was Caiaphas. So they called together the Sanhedrin. They said, what are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. So th this is so important for us not to miss. Some believed and others did not. The same evidence that led others to conclude they needed to believe in Jesus, the very same evidence led others to believe that they should go and report Jesus. And what this says to us is this, that sometimes there's no amount of evidence that will convince someone who has willfully decided not to believe. It's one thing to say, I can't believe. It's a completely different other thing to say, I won't believe. And besides that, the Sadducees, who made up most of the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas, a Sadducee, they had a theological problem because the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. They didn't believe in life after death. They believed in the Torah. That was it. And they specifically didn't believe in resurrections. Now those who didn't believe in resurrection, the theologians of the day, have just noticed that their theology is pretty much junk. Those who didn't believe in a resurrection just saw a resurrection. And that's a problem for them. So they got a theological problem because when you're the religious aristocracy and you're the theologians of the day and you guard the theology of the day and you find out your theology's not right, boy, you got to circle the wagons. You got to circle the wagons fast to find out what to do. They had a theology problem. They had a people problem because now there's this division. A growing number of people are believing that Jesus just might be the Messiah. And so John takes us further into this story and what he reveals to us next answers the age-old question. Why was Jesus killed? Why was Jesus killed? He's going to tell us exactly. He's going to take us on the inside and show us exactly why Jesus was killed. We pick up the conversation. It says, if we let him go on like this, right there at the Sanhedrin, if we let him go on like this, like he's doing something terrible, he's raised a man from the dead. They said, everyone will believe in him. That, that's what they were afraid of. We're going to lose the people. We're going to lose power. We're going to lose position. If we don't do something about this, everyone's going to believe in this guy. And then the Romans will come in. And this is why Jesus was killed. This is it. They open up their hearts. They expose their darkest thoughts. Then the Romans will come in and take away both our temple and our nation. Because the temple and the nation had become the center of their world. It had become the most important thing to them and they would do anything in the world. They would go to any lengths to protect the thing that was most important to them, the temple 
in the nation. Now, let me say a word to us, especially those of us who are followers of Jesus, church people, you know, pretty much week in and week out or most weeks of the year, we're, we're sitting in church, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to do what we need to do. Let, let me say something to us. What we see in this moment is a serious reminder that loving the things of God is not the, not the same as loving God. Loving the things of God is not the same as loving God. The temple had been given to them by God. The nation had been brought about because of God. These were the things of God. These were gifts. These were important things. But they'd become the most important things. And they loved the things of God, but the thing that they did not love was God. Or at least they didn't love him most. What they feared most was losing their wealth, their power, their place. That's what they were afraid of that the Romans were gonna come in and take their temple and take away their nation. So something had to be done. This had to be stopped. Then enter our man. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year spoke up because he's been listening to all this. You know nothing at all. And he looks at the Sanhedrin, the most powerful men of the day. And he says, you know nothing at all. You're talking about this man. You're talking about these miracles. You say something has to be done, but you know nothing at all. And everybody, they fasten their eyes on Caiaphas. And Caiaphas says, you do not realize because you don't see what I see and you don't know what I know. You don't realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. The most important thing in their life had put them at odds with the most important thing in life. The most important thing in their life was temple nation. Their temple and their nation, their power, their aristocracy, the fact that they controlled the wealth of the temple, the power of the temple, they wielded authority and influence over the people. This was Caiaphas' kingdom, and he was king. He says, you don't know nothing at all. It would be better for one man to die than for us to lose what we have. And in this moment, we see his sinister intent wrapped up in noble patriotism and virtuous faith. But here is a man who is savage to the core. In his case, his defense, same as you, same as I've used. The ends justify the means. It would be better for one man to die than for us to lose the whole nation. And so here is the custodian and the defender of the law of God, Caiaphas, the most powerful religious figure in all the nation, the guardian of the commandments of God. And he advocates for the murder of Jesus. And it reminds us of something sobering that you can't honor God and dishonor his commandments at the same time. He thought he was doing God a favor. He thought he was doing himself a favor. He thought he was doing all of his best friends a favor, but yet he was advocating to kill an innocent man, to break one of the 10, thou shalt not murder. And John, he's writing about all of this. And he writes about this years later in, 
And, and as John's writing this story out, because he wants the world to know about it, John, John, John gives us a little parentheses. John says, Caiaphas did not say this on his own, but his high priest that year, he prophesied, this villain prophesied. Can you believe it? This high priest, this guy who's advocating for the murder of Jesus, he was like a prophet. He was, he was predicting the future when he said that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So John looks back years later and he's thinking, Caiaphas thought that he was ending Jesus. Caiaphas thought that he was ending this revolution, but what he was about to do was going to kickstart a revolution because Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees had no idea what they were being swept up in. And they are advocating Caiaphas is advocating to carry out what will become the most famous act of injustice and murder that the world has ever known, the execution of Jesus of Nazareth. And John says, so from that day, they plotted to take his life because when the circumstances are right, we are capable of committing any wrong, just like Caiaphas and just like his friends. When we get swept up in whatever it is that we're swept up in and everything's just right, we are capable of committing any wrong. And from that day, they plotted to take his life and that's exactly what they did. Caiaphas paid a man on the inside to betray, betray Jesus. They arrested Jesus and brought Jesus in front of them at the Sanhedrin. At the Sanhedrin, they asked him, what do you have to say? And Jesus would not say anything at first. And then they spit in his face. They spit in his face. And one by one, they punched him and they slapped him. And they said, prophesy to us who hit you. These men who were supposed to be defenders of the law of God, these men who were supposed to love God are spitting in the face of God. They have set their will against God. They have set their way against God. And Caiaphas, he forges an unholy alliance with Rome. And on Good Friday, he had Jesus crucified on a Roman cross. Jesus died and was buried. And undoubtedly, the Sanhedrin congratulated Caiaphas. Caiaphas, you did it. Caiaphas, you know what to do. This is why you are who you are. Caiaphas, you got us out of a tight one. We thought we were gone. Caiaphas, bravo, bravo Caiaphas. Because it appeared as though he had ended the problem of Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus was dead and Jesus was buried. And Caiaphas still had his kingdom and everything was good. But you see, Jesus, he had taught that no one takes his life. 
that he lays it down of his own will. And if he lays it down of his own will, he has the authority to take it back up again. And that's exactly what happened on the third day when Jesus was raised from the dead. Undoubtedly, there were sounds of footprint, footsteps running down the halls of Caiaphas's palace. I can see them as they come to Caiaphas' private quarters and they knock on the door and they barge in and they say, Caiaphas, we have a problem. And Caiaphas says, speak. The body of the rabbi from Nazareth is missing. Caiaphas reaches for his seat. And in the days to come, there'll be rumors all over the land that Jesus is no longer dead, but he's been raised to life. A little over a month from that day, the followers of Jesus will emerge and flood the streets of Jerusalem and they will have the message that he was killed, but God raised him from the dead. And Simon Peter, a Galilean fisherman, leader of the disciples of Jesus, will look Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin in the face and say, you killed him, but God raised him and has made him Lord and Christ. And thus started a revolution. A revolution where there was no more temple because the believers were the temple of the Holy Spirit. There would be no need for more sacrifices because Jesus was the final sacrifice for sin. There would be no priesthood because every believer is made a priest with access to God. And there would be no law save love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And in the end of it all, Caiaphas lost it all. Why did Caiaphas resist Jesus? For the same reason we resist Jesus. To protect what is most important to us. Why do you resist Jesus when you resist Jesus? To protect what's most important to you. When what is most important to you is not what is truly most important. Why did he resist Jesus? To keep control of his own kingdom. To do what he wanted to do the way that he wanted to do it. Caiaphas refused to surrender to Jesus. He refused to recognize Jesus because he perceived the cost was too high. Just like you have done. Just like I have done at times. Because it would cost us too much. We resist. We oppose. And in the end, he lost it all. But if he'd listened to Jesus, he would have known the ending of the story. Before the end of the story. Jesus said, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. That's what happened to Caiaphas. That's what will happen with me. That's what will happen with you. But whoever loses their life, whoever says, not my kingdom, thy kingdom. Whoever says, not my will, but thy will. They will find life. And Jesus says, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world? What, what good will it be for you to have your kingdom the way you want it? To have everything you want, when you want it, with whom you want it? What good will it be if in the end you have to forfeit your soul? 
Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? And Jesus is saying in that moment, if it came to forfeiting your soul, you'd pay any price not to forfeit your soul. So imagine that you live the life you want. You live for your kingdom. You sit on the throne of your life and you get everything you ever wanted. Would it be worth it if in the end you had to forfeit your soul? You see, when you live for the important things, but resist the most important thing, you will forfeit everything in the end. When Jesus isn't the most important thing in life, when Jesus isn't most important to me and when Jesus isn't most important to you, it puts me at odds with Jesus every single time. So what are you trying to protect? What what are you trying to preserve about your kingdom that's putting you at odds with Jesus? What are you trying to keep control of? Because you can't protect your kingdom and pursue God's kingdom at the same time. Jesus said, I want you to seek first. I want you to put me in the center. I want you to put me on the throne. My will, not your will. My kingdom, not your kingdom. Because Jesus knew there's nothing more important than what is most important. That's Jesus. So let's get honest. Are you protecting something from Jesus that's got you at odds with Jesus? Is there a relationship you know you need to walk away from? You know you don't need any part of that, but yet you don't want to. And so you're at odds with Jesus. What are you trying to protect? Is it a habit? Is it a prescription medication that nobody knows about, but you know about it and it's gone too far? It didn't start that way, but it went too far. Is it alcohol that it started harmless enough? It was just occasionally and it was just social, but but now no one knows just how far it's gone and you're protecting it. And it's got you at odds with Jesus. Is it pornography? Yeah, everybody else has gone to bed and nobody else knows it. Nobody else will ever check. But you're holding on and you're protecting that part of your kingdom. What is it? Unforgiveness, bitterness, your wealth. Preserving your kingdom at all cost will cost you in the end. Jesus will cost you something. Whether you decide to say yes to Jesus or no to Jesus. Don't be like Caiaphas. Don't protect your kingdom at all costs. Let's not be like Caiaphas. And go to extremes that undermine our own future, that hurt us and hurt others in the process. My kingdom leads to regret. It leads to hurt. It leads to disappointment. In the end, my kingdom always disappears. There's only one kingdom that lasts forever. What are you protecting from Jesus that you need to lay aside? Heavenly Father, with all of our eyes closed, our heads are bowed, would you speak to us in this moment? Show us what we need to lay aside. Show us what we need to surrender to you. In Jesus' name, amen. For just a couple of moments, we're gonna remain seated we're going to listen to the words of this song that says, Jesus, may your name be lifted high until all my kingdoms are brought low. 
And I want us just to sit. And I want us to just pray this prayer. God, would you show me what I need to lay aside? Will you show me what I've been protecting in my kingdom so I can let it go today? And if you're here and you want to pray, you can come down front and you can just find a place to pray and say, God, today I lay it aside. But if you want to do that in your seat, you can do it right there where you are. Listen to the words of this song and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart about what it is that you may need to lay aside. God, speak to us in this moment.